This is R.J. Rushdooney, Easy Chair number 63, February the 3rd, 1984. I'm going to start off this time by reading an article in its entirety. I've never done this before, but this article, a grim and unpleasant matter, is nonetheless very important for us to consider because it tells us something as to what is happening in this country and the depth of moral insensitivity in our time. This is from All About Issues, put out by the American Life Lobby, and I'll tell you later, if you're interested, how you can get this article. It is by Dr. Olga Fairfax, 101 Uses for a Dead or Alive Baby. Now to read the article. When I saw the first ad on TV advertising collagen-enriched cosmetics, I was speechless. We'll be apologizing to Hitler, I thought. At least he didn't kill for money. Collagen is the gelatinous substance found in the connective tissue, bone, and cartilage. Nick Thim, uh, Mesh, a syndicated column, Our Grizzly Human Fetal Industry, documents that amniotic fluid and collagen can come from fetal matter. Since the Food and Drug Administration does not require pre-testing, or the identification of cosmetic ingredients. A glance through a local drugstore revealed that the leading 12 shampoos and five hand creams all contained collagen. Check your beauty products, and you may be shocked. Unless your beauty product specifies animal collagen or bovine collagen, the product probably contains human collagen. The drug company should be challenged at once. Even collagen taken from human placenta raises questions about respect of life and ownership of the placenta. A, late, a letter from Mary Kay Cosmetics emphasizes that their collagen all comes from animals. A similar letter from Hask has also been received. Since there are a million and a half abortions every year, there is an abundant source of fetuses for commercial use. There is a triple profit to be had. The first is from the abortion, estimated at half a billion dollars a year by Fortune magazine. The second profit comes from the sale of aborted babies' bodies. The third profit is from unsuspecting customers buying cosmetics. Babies' bodies are sold by the bag, $25 a batch or up to 5500 a pound. The sale of late-term elective abortions at D.C. General Hospital brought $68,000 between 1966 and 1976. The money was used to buy a TV set and cookies and soft drinks for visiting professors. Personally, I hope that they choked on the Kool-Aid. Call your local abortuary and hospital and ask them some pointed questions about the disposal and possible sale of fetuses. Would an abortionist who kills a baby think twice about selling its body?
One prenatal killer said a baby is becoming property. We kill, keep, or sell the property. In the Pittsburgh Women's Health Service, there's a sign in the lab areas asking doctors not to carry dead fetuses without wrapping them since it disturbs the patients. What have abortuaries done with fetuses in the past before they realized that they could make another profit out of them? Well, Richmond's shame marked a new low in disposal of waste. An abortion center there filled a long bin on the rear of its property with the remains of its day's nefarious doings. Its trash compactor neatly mashed a hundred babies' bodies, which were then tied up in plastic bodies and thrown on top of the bin. The hun hungry dogs came along and dragged the bags away. There were frequent fights, and the contents of the bags would be strewn up and down the streets until the dogs separated the gauze, sponges, and pads and devoured the placenta bones and flesh of the babies, said a mother. She went to the police, health, health department, and city hall and felt that she got nowhere. But the bags of warm human babies' mutilated parts disappeared from the streets, even though the clinic increased its abortions from 25 to 150 a week. They've since moved to larger quarters. The Jacksonville, Florida Women's Center for Reproductive Health, which is run and owned by the Clergy Consultation Service, advertises celebrating a decade of service. What they don't advertise is that they leave aborted babies out for the trash pickup. Reverend Marvin Lutz, the director, explained that the practice of leaving the remains out was perfectly legal and approved by the Good, Keeping, Good Housekeeping Judases, the National Abortion Federation and the Florida Abortion Council. Dr. Geronimo Dominguez of New York wrote that on any Monday you can see about 30 garbage bags with fetal material in them along the sidewalks of several abortion clinics in New York. In Odessa, Texas, City Ordinance 69-91 forbids placing a dead animal in a dumpster, but that didn't stop one abortionist from depositing large brown plastic bags full of sock-like gauze bags into the city dumpster prior to closing every night. A Baptist minister opened the bags and to his horror found little perfectly formed hands and feet of a 13-week-old baby and the complete body and pieces of a 17-week-old baby. Everything except one foot was there. The rib cage, sexual organs, head, fingernails, and toenails. He nearly died of shock. I nearly did, too, reading about it. Babies used to be burned on the altar to Baal. Now they're burned in furnaces at the sites of their deaths. In Cincinnati, a prenatal killer allowed dense smoke to emanate from his chimney. When firemen were called, they were told they're burning babies, as if that was routine. One wonders how life-saving firemen could continue their dedication amid such contradiction. One pro-lifer overheard her children, ages five and seven, discussing the infamous picture of the babies in the trash can the first time they saw it. It's dolls. It has to be dolls, said the kindergarten.
child. No, said his preschool sister, it's babies. The older child couldn't believe it. It has to be dolls. He insisted. Why would anyone throw away babies? When their mother explained to them that it was babies, both children grew very quiet. Silently, they studied the picture and then recalled the times they had gone on trips to the city dump with the family. Will the rats eat the babies when they take them to the dump? The boy asked. A wounded American eagle was found in Maryland recently and rushed to emergency treatment, but it was too late. He died. A $5,000 reward was offered for the arrest of its killer. Similarly, the Isaac Walton League's Ethics Fund has spent nearly 60000 in the last year and a half to enhance outdoor ethics. It is illegal to ship pregnant lobsters, regardless of which trimester to market. There's a $1,000 fine and a year's jail term as a penalty. The Massachusetts Supreme Court has ruled that goldfish cannot be awarded as prizes in games of chance. This violates the state's anti-cruelty law to protect the tendency uh, to dull humanitarian feelings and corrupt the morals of those who observe them. This same court upheld mandatory state funding of abortions. If the human fetus were an animal, its welfare might be entrusted to the Department of Agriculture or the Fish and Wildlife Service where it would be safer than at the mercy of the health department. The hackles of the SBCA would rise at the physical treatment that it received. Some researchers insist that the reason they must do research on human fetuses is because they are human, not animal. And it shouldn't happen to a dog story. Forty-seven senators voted in 1974 to protect dogs from experimentation with poisonous gas, but then voted down Senator Jesse Helms' amendment to prevent federal funds from being used for abortion. One liberal pro-abortion senator gave an emotion-laden speech to protect dogs. Man's best friend came out better than man himself. Who is pressing for the right to experiment? no one less than the National Institutes of Health. A stacked national commission gave them the right, and this experiment is funded by you, the taxpayer. This is another sequel to the erosion of the value of human life. Abortion, fetal experimentation, infanticide, and euthanasia are four walls of the same coffin. Even Planned Parenthood's anti-life lawyer, Harriet Pilpel, was shocked. What mother would consent to an experiment on her fetus, she asked. Some of the more shocking facts that will give you heart palpitations include the young couple who wanted to conceive a child to be aborted so that the father-to-be could use the baby's kidneys for a transplant that he needed himself. In California, babies aborted at six months were submerged in jars of liquid with high oxygen content to see if they could breathe through their skins. They couldn't. 
The hysterectomy aborted fetus in the seventh, eighth, and ninth months is removed intact. Translation, the baby, baby is alive. The trade in fetal tissue is about $1 million annually. The high prices may encourage unnecessary abortions on welfare patients as the surest way of getting saleable tissue. Dr. Robert Schwartz, Chief of Pediatrics at the Cleveland Metropolitan Hospital, said that after a baby is delivered, while it is still linked to its mother by the umbilical cord, I take a blood sample, sever the cord, and then as quickly as possible remove the organs and tissues. McGee Women's Hospital in Pittsburgh packed aborted babies in ice for shipment to uh, experimental labs. Newsday reported that an Ohio medical research company tested the brains and hearts of 100 fetuses as part of a $300,000 pesticide contract. Human embryos and other organs have been encased in plastic and sold as paperweight novelty items. The Diabetics Treatment Project at UCLA depends for its existence on the availability of pancreases from late-term aborted fetuses. A rabies vaccine is produced from viruses grown in the lungs of aborted children, according to FDA. A polio vaccine was also grown with cells from aborted kids. Brain cells would be harvested from aborted babies for transplant. Tissue cultures are obtained by dropping still-live babies into meat grinders and homogenizing them, according to the prestigious New England Journal of Medicine. The Village Voice reported estimates seven years ago the 20,000 to 100,000 fetuses are sold to drug companies each year in the U.S., a $600,000 grant from NIH enabled one baby, among many others in the experiment done in Finland, to be sliced open without an anesthetic so that a liver could be obtained. The researcher in charge said that the baby was complete and was even secreting urine. He disclaimed the need for our anesthetic, saying an aborted baby is just garbage. Don't tell God. A study on the severed heads of 12 babies delivered by a C-section who were kept alive for months. Even the baby's placenta is sold for 50 cents to drug companies. Ever heard of placenta plus shampoo? And the atrocities go on. Will the unborn be regarded as handy little organ sources? Will our pre-born brothers and sisters become a source of spare body parts? Listen to the new newscasters. They are already pleading nationwide for organs. It's enough to make you tear up your organ donor card. At least adults can consent to being inventorized like a body a shop spare parts department. But little ones cannot. After reading that aborted baby's fat is being used to make soap in England, and the fact that the former head of the Federal Center for Disease Control Abortion Surveillance Branch proposed that abortions should be 
charged for by the length of the baby's foot. Are we surprised that babies are treated in the year of the child this way or the year of the disabled? After reading the above, if your heart is still beating, run, don't walk to your nearest prayer closet and start praying. Editor's note, everything you have just read is quite true. Dr. Fairfax has documentation and clippings to support every point made in this article. You may obtain a copy from her. Please send a donation with your request for the 40 pages to Dr. Olga Fairfax, 12105 Livingston Street, Wheaton, Maryland, 20902. You can get this article by sending a donation to American Life Lobby, P.O. Box 490, Stafford, S-T-A-F-F-O-R-D, Virginia, 22554. Write for... All About Issues, January 1984. And don't write without sending a gift to them. This tells us how far we have gone. Let no one talk about how great and marvelous our country is. We stink in the sight of God. We can talk about evil elsewhere, but let's look at the evil in our own midst. This kind of thing puts to shame anything that Hitler did. It is incredibly evil. Then I'd like to read from Policy Review, the winter 1984 issue, a few Paragraphs from For the Family by Midge Dechter. The subtitle, Millions of Americans Have Been Engaging in Child Sacrifice. She writes, Despite the wide availability of effective means of contraception, in some cities abortions outnumber live births. A new psychotherapy or mind-altering chemical gets produced, as it seems, every minute. We are forced to ask ourselves a question so vast and general as, what is going on with us? How is it that a people blessed by God, or if you will, fate, with better health, longer lives, greater comfort and personal freedom and economic well-being, than any previous peoples in history should give so much evidence of deep trouble. Not so very long ago, a whole generation of this country's middle-class children rose up in late adolescence and said that they could see no reason to prepare themselves to take on the burdens of adult life, to serve their country, for instance, or educate themselves or make a living. They left school, they ran away, they drugged themselves. 
In milder cases, they just kind of hung around, growing pale, unkempt, unhealthy, and truculent. And untold numbers of them committed suicide. Again, I do not speak metaphorically. In ten years, the suicide rate of those from 18 to 25 increased by 25%. How did we respond to this? We elders, we parents, teachers, clergymen, journalists, civic leaders, and yes, legislators. We applauded them. We said they were the best generation ever seen. They were great idealists, far superior to ourselves. We said they had discovered a new way to live. In short, we abandoned them. Just as surely as if we had with our own hands bared their necks to the ritual knife, we sacrificed them on the altar of our own moral irresponsibility. Those who managed to save themselves did so with no help from any of the authorities in their lives, neither parental, religious, nor intellectual. For none of those authorities would tell them what they needed to know, that life is real and weighty and consequential, that life is good, and only good when it is real and weighty and consequential, that it requires discipline and courage and the assumption of responsibility for oneself and others, and that it repays and only repays discipline and courage and the assumption of responsibility for oneself and for others. Then she goes on to say that the truth is that we have lost the collective ability to make the simplest moral assertions. Well, that's an excellent article. Policy Review is put out by the Heritage Foundation and it can be ordered from 214 Massachusetts Avenue, Northeast, Washington, D.C., 2002, for 350 a copy. The reason we cannot make the simplest moral assertion as a people is that most of the people are operating without faith. And without faith, you don't have the premise to make a judgment. One of the books I read recently, which is now out of print, is Lev Kopelev, To Be Preserved Forever, which was published in 1977, translated from the Russian. And Lev Kopelev is still in the Soviet Union. He is still a devout Marxist. And yet he suffered in the Gulag. In fact, he appears in Solzhenitsyn's stories as one of the leading characters. He got into trouble during the war when, as a top-ranking officer, he took seriously the order against looting and rape. And that was simply window dressing. The order was not to be taken seriously. The men were turned loose 
for unrestricted looting and rape. Moreover, as Kopelev says, lest anyone think that uh, this is a part of the Russian character, he says that in 1914, the Germans put out a book, Russian Troops in East Prussia, and it was to present the horrors of the Russian invasion in the early years of the war. What does the book come up with against the Russians? Two cases of rape, several cases of robbery, beatings, one or two cases of murder. Moreover, in each of these cases, Russian officers stepped in, tried to stop it, and handed out punishment. Moreover, the Germans in this book giving the horrors of the Russian invasion, listed all the chickens killed and all the fruit trees smashed and all the faces slapped. So the book really dealt with very little. Since then, atrocities have become routine. Well, if men will not live with God, they are going to live in hell. And they will turn whatever they have and wherever they are into hell. Now to another book, which is in print. It is a book published in 1983 by Random House, Andrew Cockburn, C-O-C-K-B-U-R-N, The Threat Inside the Soviet Military Machine, published for 1695 by Random House, and well worth reading. Now Cockburn has to be taken with more than a grain of salt. He is an Englishman who, or rather British, he lives in New York. He is very definitely to the left. And we need to recognize that as we evaluate what he says. But his book is well documented, and I do believe it is important to consider. His point is that the Soviet military machine is vastly overrated. It's a consummate bureaucracy. As a bureaucracy, it is dedicated to perpetuating the incompetent. The commander of a division must inescapably bear the blame for everything that happens in his division from those above him. As a result, if any scandal or any corruption or any incompetence occurs in his division, anyone who covers it up will get his gratitude. It means, therefore, that the men who perpetrate something are not going to be punished. For example, 
in at least one instance, some young men hijacked a military plane in their outfit and flew to go home for a visit. They were drunk, and it seemed like a good idea. The whole thing was covered up. They should have been shot, according to law, but they were protected. Now, everyone who helped with a cover-up had the gratitude of the commander of the division. In turn, every commander, when he blunders, is protected by someone above him. So the whole thing results in the incompetent having something on somebody else because they covered up for him and therefore getting promoted. And so the result is that the blunderers are increasingly getting to the top. For example, he cites an example of the... Uh, incompetence that results. When November of 1980, Solidarity was moving to one success after another in Poland, it was decided to make a move, and the generals were all for it. And so, the invasion of Poland was ordered. Let me quote what is said. The trouble for the bellicose generals was that although they seemed to have won the political battle, that is, the decision to move into Poland, they were less adept at getting ready for a military operation. The actual mobilization turned into a shambles, Reservists called up in key districts next to the Polish border, promptly deserted in numbers too large to punish, and coordination between different units and headquarters broke down. Military invention had been successfully touted by the generals over the apparent objections of Brezhnev, but they then had been unable to get the troops ready. It did not take long for the wily president of the Soviet Union to make them suffer the consequences. Now, Cockburn twice goes into this matter, and the evidence he produces of the farce that the attempted Polish invasion was is very telling. The idea that the uh, Soviets can quickly mobilize a force is ridiculous. In fact, almost only one country has been effective in a quick mobilization, Israel. Moreover, he says that the facts and figures with regard to the vast number of men is complicated in that all kinds of civilians are included and more. Then, too, he 
calls attention to the fact that the Soviet technology is poor, even when borrowed, it is incompetently used. As a result, when Soviet arms have been used against Israel, the Israelis have outgunned them every time. American weapons have proven to be superior. And the Soviet equipment has been proven to be incredibly bad. Then there's another factor. He deals, too, with the intercontinental ballistic, ballistic uh, missiles. How big a threat are they? And uh, the picture he gives here is quite telling. Because what he says is uh, they don't have much success with them. Let me quote. Paradoxically, the sum of all the uncertainties, unpredictable weather patterns, the inconsistency of guidance systems, even when traveling over familiar routes, the dubious reliability of missile systems, leads us to one certainty, a precisely orchestrated Soviet counterforce strike against American missiles as they are now deployed is absolutely impossible. No less a figure than Dr. James R. Schlesinger, a former CIA director, Secretary of Defense, and senior strategic analyst at the Rand Corporation, tried to make this very clear in testimony presented to the Senate Foreign Relations Committee in April 1982. Quote, The precision that one encounters in paper studies of nuclear exchanges reflects the precision of the assumptions rather than any experience based on approximation to real-life test data. Specialists, in their enthusiasm, tend to forget how conjectural the whole process remains. To a greater or lesser degree, we are employing speculations regarding delivery system reliability and accuracy reliability of the nuclear weapons and the impact of weapons effects. This introduces vastly greater than normal uncertainties into such paper analyses. We must be careful, therefore, not to ignore these dominating uncertainties and thereby to ascribe high probability to the outcomes projected in these paper studies. To do so would be to fall into the error that Alfred North Whitehead once described as the fallacy of misplaced concreteness. Well, there's much more here. But in the various tests, what has happened is that the tests have proven that the Soviet military is weak and almost farcical and hardly to be qualified as the threat some would see it as. For example, 
He says further, according to U.S. intelligence analysts who have had access to the secret reports on Soviet ICBM test shots from operational silos, the failure rate is extremely high. According to one senior weapons engineer who has seen highly classified intelligence data on the tests, it would be inconceivable for the Soviets to risk a first strike in view of their reliability problem. Their accuracy stinks, and reliability is so bad you can't believe it, he told a reporter in 1983. Although the Defense Department typically assumes that Soviet missiles are 80 to 85 percent reliable, it would be closer to the mark to call them that their unreliability. Far from being ominous, the fact that the Soviets do carry out semi-realistic tests of their nuclear war fighting equipment is very comforting. It means that General Tolubko and his staff have some idea of just how unreliable their missiles actually are. The Americans, in contrast, prefer to remain in happy ignorance. Then he goes on to say that uh, some uh, of their uh, nuclear forces, uh, as far as their operational ability is concerned, it may be as low as 25%. The exact figure, he says, is hard to pin down, but it is almost certainly no higher than 70%. The remaining 30% are stood down for overhaul at any one time, unavailable for action. There's a great deal, very important material in this book. Uh, We have to recognize Cockburn's bias. But nonetheless, I think we have consistently overrated the enemy and underrated ourselves. Moreover, I do believe the Soviets are a major threat on the international scene because of our foreign service, our State Department and its incompetence. Our bungling has created the threat everywhere so that by default we have allowed them to take over. Then I do believe that the greatest threat is from within our own country, from the creeping and growing, now sometimes galloping, socialism of our people. There was an interesting article on the 23rd of December, 1983, in the Wall Street Journal. It was by Igor Berman. Soviet bluster stems from economic decay. Just a a small portion of that. I quote, As V. Kantorovich of the Foundation for Soviet Studies has demonstrated, all Western forecasts of the Soviet economy for the 1970s 
were higher than naive extrapolations, hence even higher than the actual performance. Still, the same kind of predictions are given to us now. Most of the experts do not like the very word collapse. And let us not waste words about words. I am simply saying that the economy is stagnating, that in a short time it will go downhill faster and faster, and that something very drastic must be done. This fall I talked to a leading French Sovietologist who had just returned from Moscow. She also asserted that the economy will scrape by. What did Soviet economists reveal to you in private, I inquired. Oh, my Soviet friends agree with you, she confessed. What do you think that your assessment... Uh, why do you think that your assessment is more accurate than ours, I insisted. No answer. I addressed the same question to American experts with the same results. Unquote. Well, anyone who knows something about free market economics should have been able to say the same thing a long time ago. The Soviet economy can only go downhill, and it is going downhill. The insanity of the situation is that we are imitating them. We are moving every year into more and more controls so that we are going downhill also. It is as though we regarded them as the role model for our country, and it is radically wrong. Now to an entirely different subject, very briefly. I have received a number of letters and phone calls from Nebraska about the situation there, about those parents who were imprisoned because of their involvement in the Faith Christian School in Louisville, Nebraska. I had a letter from one of the men in jail just recently. And he writes, five men and myself are in Cass County Jail for not answering our questions, uh, answering questions about our involvement in the Faith Christian School in Louisville, Nebraska. Our wives and children are in Liberty, Missouri. They are staying with church families uh, from Calvary Baptist Church, pastored by Jim Keaton. As of today, we've been here. 54 days. This was a couple of weeks or so ago. I very much appreciate your letters. We know exactly what your position paper number 44 is talking about. We would appreciate your prayers. I'm sending a gift I was going to send a year ago. Forgive me for not sharing. We are learning how to put all our trust in the Lord and learning patience. Thank you for your time. We love you. In Jesus' name, Larry Nolte. He sent $40. If you're not praying for him, may God forgive you.
Well, some time ago I told you about the transsexual, the man who had a sex change operation and became a woman. From Ken, he became Karen. He had been talking about suicide a great deal, and the airline, Eastern Airline, refused to rehire him. But recently, a federal judge ordered Eastern Airlines to retire, rehire her. So she is apparently back on the job unless... Eastern has decided to appeal and continue to fight it. Then, in the Wall Street Journal for Tuesday, January the 3rd, 1984, there was an interesting little note about sexual harassment on campus. A number of universities have had problems lately with professors insisting on sex with their female students in order to get passing or good grades. A survey published in the Journal of College Student Personnel showed that nearly a third of 226 females who were surveyed reported being harassed sexually. Now, there's nothing new about this about, well, 20, 21 years ago when I was doing research at one of the major universities of this country, there was a great scandal on campus because of this sort of thing. In fact, it was the Dean of Women who reported it to the trustees. The trustees only covered up the thing. The student paper ridiculed the dean of women, and she and six of her seven staff associates resigned in protest. Nothing was done. And you'd better believe that nothing is going to be done now, despite surface and cosmetic measures. Because without a religious and moral change, there will be no change. We live in a world that is in serious trouble. One of the books I read recently, not a very good book, but with some very important data in it, was Robert Payne's Massacre, also out of print. Its date was 1973. And it describes the massacres in Bangladesh by Pakistan. Three million were killed. Three million. And they did it casually and routinely. They killed defenseless people simply to eliminate them. On top of that, the Pakistani... Command being very much British trained. Loved to parade around and survey their handiwork with uh, 
a swagger stick under their arm, a British military mustache, a little brush, and with comments like, cheerio, well done, old boy, and that sort of comment. All the facade of civilization with mass murders. And this is what we have. Whether it's in Britain or Western Europe generally or the United States. The facade of civilization. Civilization does not long endure when the faith that makes it is gone. And so there are barbarians all over the United States. And they are dangerous. Crime is increasing because of these barbarians. And it will not change because short of a theological or religious change, there will be none. Another book of a few years ago that I read just recently was about Abscam. The Sting Man Inside Abscam by Robert W. Green, put out by Dutton in 1981, and I believe out of print. A very interesting book because while Abscam revealed the immorality of some of the congressmen, it also revealed the immorality of the men who conducted it. It was a sordid operation from start to finish. And they used the worst kind of men for a very seedy operation. There is less and less morality anywhere around us. Now it is something very different One of the books I read recently, which possibly may still be in print, I don't know, it may be reprinted, is Nora Lofts, L-O-F-T-S, Anne Boleyn, published by Coward, McCann, and Gohegan in New York in 1970 and reprinted in 80. There are some interesting little bits in it. It's not an important book, but what interested me was that Anne Boleyn was an accomplished musician. When she was facing death, she composed a very interesting little tune. A portion of it reads, O death, rock me asleep. Bring on my quiet rest. Let pass my very guiltless ghost out of my careful breast. Ring out the doleful knell, let it sound my death knell, for I must die. There is no remedy, for now I die. Defiled is my name, full sorrow through cruel spite and false report, that I may say forevermore farewell to joy, adieu comfort, for wrongfully you judge of me 
Unto my fame a mortal wound, say what you list, it may not be. Ye seek for that that shall not be found. In other words, what she minded was not death, but the infamy that was ascribed to, to her. Well, I cite that because a point I have made more than once I want to make again. Charles Lofton portrayed a good many years ago, about 40, 45 years ago perhaps, Henry VIII and portrayed him as a slob. Most people think of him that way. What we need to recognize is this. Henry VIII was trained to be the philosopher king. The great scholars of the day, including Sir Thomas More, regarded him as the high point of the Renaissance hope. A king who was a scholar, a thinker, an accomplished musician who is now going to be Plato's philosopher king. They broke with him simply because he learned his lesson very well and decided to do without them. Henry VIII composed some very lovely poetry set to music. Now, I raise this point because we have to recognize that Henry VIII was not the slob Charles Lawton portrayed him to be. Lawton was the slob. Henry VIII was a cultured Renaissance monarch, but he was a moral monster. Just as people in high places today, ruling countries, may and sometimes are cultured, very pleasant, and affable gentlemen. But they are moral monsters. And the only thing that's going to change that fact is Jesus Christ. And so we accomplish nothing by portraying Henry VIII as a slob. We don't realize that that's not the way to recognize evil. Evil can go to the symphony orchestra, ballet, and opera just as well as to a rock and roll concert. Evil has to be seen in terms of what a man does. Well, now on to... Something else. I don't recall who it was who sent this to me. One of you did about the situation in New York. Where New York City is uh, giving the Salvation of Army a bad time. Because they are insisting that ex the mayor's executive order 50 which requires any agency doing business with a city to pledge not to discriminate against anyone in hiring because of sexual 
orientation and affectional preference. And the Salvation Army believes that anyone who works in their ranks or for them must be a Christian and cannot be a homosexual. You can be anything today except a Christian, it appears. Then you're discriminated against. Now, one uh, matter briefly. One of the important points that Dr. Cornelius Van Til makes in his philosophy of religion writings is that if you do not begin with God, the God of Scripture, you have a world of root factuality, that is, of meaningless facts, unrelated facts, a universe in which every fact is unrelated to every other fact because all are products of chance. In such a world, there can be no meaning. In fact, Camus said, if there were one fact in all the universe, one atom that had meaning, it would posit God. It would posit a world of ultimate meaning. But all facts are brute or meaningless facts. Well, it is interesting that... Uh, this concept of, has, of course, been very prominent in art. And I was very much interested in my reading recently to find that one Frenchman, Jean Dubuffet, who was born in 1901, developed what he called art brut, meaning rough or raw as opposed to fine art. The prototype for Art Brute was in the work of primitives, children and psychotics. But basically, what his Art Brute is, because the writer of this book, Techniques of Modern Art, don't call attention to the heart of it. What the artist does not only uh, Dubuffet, but others, is to paint pictures in which you have a great deal of miscellaneous data, miscellaneous figures if it's realistic. And there is no way you can give a meaning to it. Christian art has a focus. It is saying something. It tells you something. You get an impression from it. But this art of brute factuality has no meaning. If you see a meaning in it, it's purely personal. And therefore, it's not a meaning that the next person might get from it. Each person makes their own meaning. And so art today has lost focus. Dubuffet's paintings have miscellaneous figures. Mountains, for example, 
one that I was just looking at, and I'll look at again. It has a Greek temple, ornate buildings, mountains, dark sky with a crescent moon, a lady dressed in fashion of the last century, a skeleton, two nudes. What does it mean? Nothing. Miscellaneous items to give us a picture of brute factuality, of a meaningless world in which nothing has relationship to anything else. Well, when you have a world of brute factuality, you can have abortion. You can have the gulag. You can have the kinds of evils that are prevalent in the streets of every country. But you will not have morality. You will not have men with a work ethic efficiency, and you will have the breakdown economically and militarily which marks the Soviet Union and which marks other countries. Cockburn, I think, overstates the case with regard to the United States at some points, but nonetheless, I think he is right when he calls attention to the kind of men who have in recent years gone to the top in our military establishment. One person whom he cites in particular is General Haig. General Haig shot to the top, and he became our Secretary of State and became one of the most prominent of Americans with a minimum of ability and competence. Because, after all, he represents the same type of order that you have in the Soviet Union. A kind of person who succeeds in a bureaucracy which stifles ability and talent as it grows in power. We're not going to turn this around without Christian reconstruction, beginning with the regeneration of the individual. His obedience to the every word of God, God's law word, and his readiness to move in terms of God's marching orders. Well, it has been good to be with you again. I'll look forward to our next session together. Thank you and God bless you.